Hi, everyone. I'm Megan Berg. And I'm Dr. Jeanette Benegas. And we are here to fix SLP. We are discussing the biggest challenges that are currently holding back the field of speech-language pathology. We present the issues with facts and invite you to be part of joining our movement to make things better, one conversation at a time. Let's fix SLP. Calling CARF International. For general information about accreditation or certification, press 4. Good morning, CARF International. I'm Kristen. Hi, Kristen. My name is Megan, and I have a question about what's required of speech language pathologists. Can you help me? I personally can't, but I can get you through to somebody who can. Hi, it's Juliana. Hi, Juliana. My name is Megan Berg, and I have a question about the credentialing requirements for speech-language pathologists. Um, well, so I am a speech pathologist. What? Um, yeah. All right. Yeah. So, uh, all of us in this role of resource specialist here at CARF, we, um, our background is from the field. So we are speech pathologists, physical therapists, um, for our other manuals, social workers, and things like that. Okay. Um, so, yeah. All right. Um, well, then you'll know it. We don't have any standard um, specific for speech pathology or physical therapy. Our, our standards are much more broad, um, and we accredit a rehab program. Uh-huh. Um, so, and so we don't actually accredit individuals, although an individual would seek accreditation if they wanted or needed to. Um, and then we would kind of frame it as like your clinic would be applying as a, an outpatient program. Right. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that's, I think that answers my question because as you know, there's a lot of confusion around the certificate of clinical competence, the ASHA cells mm-hmm. and if it's yeah. required. And so we're, we're getting, um, a lot of questions just about if it's required to be part of CARF. And my understanding is that an SLP just needs to meet the qualifications to be a speech pathologist in that state. So basically a state license mm-hmm. and not have to pay yeah. for the CCC. Yeah. So like our standards would say something along the lines that your personnel have to be confident, um, operating, sorry, I'm working from home. Yeah. My son is homesick. Uh-huh. Um, so competent, working within your scope of practice, and meeting any requirements that are set by a regulatory body or state licensure, things like that. Like, and and honestly, like we don't even necessarily look into what individual state requirements are. Like, we go to a survey. And we trust that the organization is going to tell us and abide by those regulations and state laws um, because we're not a regulatory body. We're just accreditation. Yeah. Uh, we don't have deemed status and things like that. So, you know, we kind of just put it back on the organization that you should be following any other requirements that are, you know, put on you by anybody else. Yeah. No, that makes sense. All right. Do you have any any other questions for me? Um, I don't. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
Yeah, of course. Anytime. All right. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. I was like, should I have asked her for permission to? I was, I was wondering that. And I was also thinking you should tell her to fix SLP. <laughs> I think we're okay. I think, yeah. I don't think they're going to. I think she us. was giving um, like standard information. Yeah. And so if she was. And it matches wrong, what's in the manual. Yeah. If she was giving wrong information, then someone needs to call her out from their organization anyway. So here we are. Look at that. Jayco, yeah. we'll get to that next, but yeah. CARF not required. P.S. Welcome back to Fix SLP, everybody. Hi, I'm Jeanette. <laughs> I'm Megan. We thought we would just start off with that phone call because we've been getting a lot of questions about if the CCC is required for these accreditation processes, mostly for rehab facilities, right? Like these are, these are the big name accreditations that facilities will seek out. Yeah. And we've, we've specifically gotten this question twice about CARF now um, at hospital systems looking to remove the CCC. And so we thought if two hospitals have already had this question, there is going to be more. So let's just get the information together for you. Obviously, um, your superiors probably want to confirm it, but all we did right there was make a phone call and talk to a person, but it is also in writing. Correct, Megan? That's what it says. Yeah. So I'm pulling it up. This is the CARF manual that you can find. It's the 2023 CARF standards manual supplement for networks. And on page 81, it talks about how to verify that providers are following the rules and like have the credentials necessary and there's nothing specific in there. Um, it says the participating provider demonstrates how each of the areas listed is verified and they are aware of and adhere to any external requirements like of funders, regulatory entities, contractual agreements, etc. So again, like what she said in the phone call, they're not regulating anything. They're leaving it up to the facility to decide what credentials are required for their staff. And what she said was interesting. She said, their standards say the personnel has to be competent within the scope of practice, which we prove through our state license, and meet requirements set by a regulatory body. ASHA is not a regulatory body, so the CCC has absolutely nothing to do with it because ASHA can't even count for that. It's a certificate, not a regulatory body. It has to be the state license. There's nothing else yep. that your employer could use. Right, Megan? Yep. Does that make sense? Did I say something? Like they can't use the CCC because it's not a regulatory right. body. Yeah, can't. It's just a certificate. Doesn't count. That would go be get like them. go get them fixers. Go get them. <laughs> and again, this gets and we'll be talking a lot more about like what should be required of SLPs. But I think what ASHA thinks they're doing is protecting SLPs from a bunch of certifications, <laughs> a bunch of other certifications that give the illusion of speech pathology credentials. Um, but there's really no way to protect the field from that other than if all of us decide that certifications are bullshit and state licensing is legitimate. 
the more certifications that are out there and the more we're buying into the system, the more likely it is for a bogus certification to mimic the qualifications of a speech pathologist. And then somebody could eventually just pay for that certification and look like they are a speech therapist, but they're not. We also wanted to play a voicemail from a listener. Should we do that right now before we dig even deeper into this topic? Yeah, let's do it. Hi there. This is Anna from the state of Colorado. And I just thought I'd leave a voicemail about my experience with the licensure process and the lack of straightforwardness that is present because it has confused both myself, three different contract companies. And then on top of that, I contacted my state's Department of Education and twice they gave me an unhelpful answer. So essentially, yeah, I've been stranded for six months. Um, no one told me I needed a certificate. I missed the deadline for that twice. Okay, great. Nice. Um, and I just find the patchwork of just licensure requirements on Ash's website to be so profoundly confusing um, and also quite horrible because if I decided to move from one state to the other, I may have to pay up to $3,000 just to be able to work in another state. And I don't understand why we don't have federal licensure that's standardized across the entire U.S. Um, because I know BCBAs, once they had their board certification, they can operate internationally. And why don't we have that sort of freedom, especially since there's a global shortage of us? Because I really feel like it would incentivize healthcare systems to be more functional if they understood the value that we have on a global scale. Uh, so I hope this asks some pretty cool questions. Thank you. So I have a few thoughts. I When I first started listening to her message, I was like, oh, she must be a school-based SLP to get the certification thing from the school system. But now I'm also remembering that in Colorado, I think they call it a certification instead of a license, which is extra confusing. <laughs> and so she makes a good point about how confusing this all is because we're here talking about state licensing and there's a state out there that doesn't even call it a license. She also mentioned Asha's website. Asha does have a place on their website where they link to all of the state regulations and they have kind of a summary table for each state about what's required. But I will say that that information is not always up to date. So things are always changing with licensing boards. And it's not clear to me that Asha keeps up with that. So if, so for example, when we were working on the spreadsheet to help everybody see which states require the CCC to get licensed. If we were to rely on the information on Asha's website, it would not be accurate. And then also she's talking about this federal license. And I think that's the interstate compact that's coming up that will hopefully resolve this. So if your state is not passing legislation to be a part of that, then just know that you're going to be years behind everybody else getting involved in that. But that could be something that you could go on to Pumble and connect with others and start to get that legislation rolling so that in the next few years, you can join that interstate compact, which so far is not requiring the C's to be an SLP to be a part of. And that would allow you to work across multiple states with both your state license and your interstate compact license. Jeanette, what are your thoughts? Yes. I would, I just want to, I just want to say about the interstate compact. So we um, started recording with um, state membership associations this week. And the one 
that I spoke with Hawaii is trying to adopt the compact, but they're having some trouble with legislation. So just know that just because they get it like in the conversation or whoever needs to look at it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to just be passed. So it like failed or whatever, and they have to try again. So just because you get it in front of people doesn't mean it's going to pass. So this can be a long process that will take time. So be patient. Okay. We got another email from someone named Jess and she says, hi, I think you two are doing a fabulous job. Thank you so much for digging into all of this. I so desperately want to quit Asha, but I'm considering paying the mafia again, just because I don't think my current job is where I will stay long-term. And I worry about being stuck in a situation where the next job requires it. But I was just listening to your episode with the 12 other professions and you briefly mentioned an SLP that called Asha to keep her CCC, but cancel her membership. Is that something we can do? Do you know what the cost difference is for that? Would love to know more about this. I'm also going to join Pumble, but thought this was important and interesting enough to go right to the source. Welcome new members. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, There is an, alternative option. And we just explored this through discussion, I think either on Facebook or Instagram this past week. So if you are already a holder of the CCC, you have to call the action center to renew your CCC and request to renew without membership. That will save you $26. So it will be $199 us dollars and that will take away your access to the journals and the asha leader anything else megan that we know of that they lose access to i'm assuming like you can't get the asha ace award yes well join the sigs did you already say that i bet well yes but those are add-ons so i want asha doesn't want to lose money so you get the ASHA ACE award by paying for the CEU tracker. So it would be interesting to know if if we have a fixer out there who doesn't have membership and when they go to renew, you know what? You can, because the next thing I was going to say was if you are already a non-member, when you renew, your renewal comes to just renew as a non-member. So someone asked about this on social and I dug into it with her because she said, wait, I, why is mine cheap? And she had all, you know how Asha loves to like pre-check all of the boxes to donate to the mm-hmm. pack and get the the thing to track the CEs. Um, all of hers were pre-checked and she was renewing as a non-member. So this is her first renewal. And we dug in, I couldn't, so I pulled up mine because I haven't renewed yet. And I couldn't figure out why hers was giving her non-member status, but mine was member status. And as it turns out, as a fellow, she chose non-member to save money. So from the gate, like last year when she paid, she didn't pay for the CCC. So it seems like the initial application might give 
fellows the option yeah. to join as a non-member. So they're member or non-member. And then when they renew, yeah. they're renewing as a non-member, but the PAC donation and the um, CE registry were still there as options. Because yeah, Ashley so, wants the money. I don't know if the SIGs were or not. She didn't show a screenshot that low. But you can yeah. still pay them $28 if you're a non-member to get that CE. Now, I don't know if you qualify for the ACE award. I don't know if you have to have the CE. Okay, but here's the thing with the ACE, ACE award. I have been reading tons of resumes. Just stop. Stop with the <laughs> ACE award. Just put, like, I've taken 70 hours of continuing education a year I, like that means so much 40, more i paid <laughs> 47000 i made 47000 dollars for 70 credit hours of CQ. <laughs> i paid all my money give me your job so i can make more <laughs> the only reason people care about the ace award is cuz we all know what it is nobody else knows what the hell the ace award is Especially people reading resumes, like I know what it is because I'm an SLP, but a lot of jobs, these aren't SLPs reading your resume. They have no idea. An ACE award could be like anything, like they have no idea. So just put the number of hours, if that's what really matters to you and you really want to show off that you take so many hours, just put the hours. I, um, I, I, I don't call it winning. I earn the ACE award every year. And now that I'm you at put a it on your resume. Well, yeah, I put it on my CV now that I'm at a university pursuing tenure, but I actually explain what it is, but I just, I had to giggle because last year when I got like my review back, they commended it. They commended earning the award and commended my commitment to um, continuing education. Why don't we have, we need other awards. I think that's the bottom line here. We need other yeah, options. The award. <laughs> yes. Who does the most fixing? <laughs> we'll send okay, you a certificate the in the mail that you can send us money to pay. <laughs> you can pay for it because if you want the actual certificate printed, you have to pay for that. And it's not just like five bucks. It's like 30 bucks or something ridiculous that you could go to like the print shop and get or do yourself. But we'll, we'll sell you that. No. What's, a, what's above an ace? There's, is there anything above an ace? A joker. The Joker Award. We could call it the Mace Award. The, I don't know. Anyway, but also, okay, so what I was going to say, if people want to switch to a certified non-member, is what they call it, you have to call the ASHA people to do that. Yeah, unless you joined. Unless you did it during your CF. Oh, the ACE is, okay, the rank of each card in Texas Hold'em Highest to lowest is ace king. So ace is the highest. Dang. Nothing's about the ace. If you're playing Texas Hold'em, that's just what Google told me. We can call it the whole house award. <laughs> flush. The flush award. Flush it all down the toilet. <laughs> flush your career. Flush your PC. <laughs> Live on the street. I just, I don't like the ACE award because it continues to give validation and meaning to Asha. The first and, time I ever got it, I was like, what is this? And then I, I, I got excited because I've never really paid attention. I just do my thing. 
And I got the letter and I was like, what even is this? And for a minute, I thought that like I had done something amazing. And then I read what it was and I said, all this means is that I spent a crap load of money in this cycle. And now like now the next two years I've gotten one, I'm like, this is dumb. It's like getting a Fitbit. Like I am, I will refuse to get a Fitbit because I will be one of those people that has to get like 60,000 steps in. And like, once you reach that goal, you're like, oh, I got to do it the next year. I got to do it the next year. And it's great. Like learning is wonderful. We should all be learning all the time. Yeah. But giving credit to Asha and giving meaning to their awards and their system is just not something that I personally want to pay into. Yeah. Okay. One more email and then we'll move on to talking about our topic. Okay. Okay. This is from Jessica. She said, hi, I'm an SLP in Indiana with 18 years of experience and I haven't had my CCC since 2020. And that is a story on its own. She says, I just signed a contract with VocoVision for a teletherapy position and I'm now in the onboarding process. So just to reiterate, I've already interviewed with the school system, accepted the position, and signed the contract. When their onboarding specialist sent me an email with a list of things they'd need from me, I noticed they wanted a copy of my ASHA membership card. This was the first time I had ever seen or heard the word ASHA throughout the process. I replied to the email and asked if a current ASHA membership was required since Indiana does not require that membership in order to be licensed as an SLP. Smart SLP. She did her homework. She replied saying that I needed to schedule a clinical, quote, orientation and to, quote, make sure my facilitator knows that I do not have an ASHA membership. I then received an email from a clinical facilitator saying, quote, VocoVision requires a clinical interview for anyone who does not meet VocoVision's minimum teletherapy requirements, end quote. When I clicked on the link to schedule the interview, I was given this information. Your recruiter has recommended you for a clinical interview. Please be prepared to answer questions like these during the clinical interview. What have you done to prepare yourself for working with students? Have you done continuing education in this area? Have you looked for information on special education at the state and federal level? Have you researched telepractice guidance from your professional organizations? Have you prepared yourself to do interventions and assessments with students via telepractice? I don't think any of these questions would have been inappropriate during an interview for the position, but I am pretty offended that they're asking me on the basis that I no longer subscribe to ASHA. I don't know if I should say something at this point or if I'd be better to let it play out, but I wanted to share this with you all. Thank you for everything you guys are doing, Jessica. Because we all know that ASHA is making sure that we have telepractice guidance and preparing us to work with students and giving us information on special education at the state federal level. Like we know those, those are all specific requirements that ASHA requires to get. <laughs> I mean, they require it. The CAA requires it. No, they don't. They don't. I, I mean, very specifically, ASHA has recently come out with, um, like rules regarding the hours that students and fellows can have for telepractice that was based on a survey that they sent out, which I think was actually a useful thing. But again, that all ties into their CCC product. It doesn't, it doesn't apply if you're not going to get the CCC, you know, if you're just getting your state license, um, it doesn't even matter. It just matters if your state has requirements surrounding that. But other than that, 
that might be it. Yeah. I would just say if anyone from Voco Vision is listening, like stop offending your staff like this. <laughs> it's very rude and insensitive and there is no difference between a licensed SLP and an SLP who, who, who pays for the CCC. Okay, with that. Oh, yes. I'm going to share because one of these hospitals that was concerned about CARF started messaging me while we were on the phone with CARF. <laughs> um, and I just want to tell you, I just want to like... Just so you're prepared, if this is something you want to take to your employer, um, I just want to share what this SLP is saying. Um, she said, she emailed, um, she said, I met with our leadership. This was funny. I think this was from the other day. She said, I met with our leadership and she acted like I was asking why we can't come to work naked when I brought up the value they see in the CCC. So very shocked. Um, but then she did say, I need to research it more. But she mentioned how the CCC is helpful for the hospital joint commission, which is JCO, um, to show competency. She said, I hadn't heard that one. So we are going to be looking into JCO too. We started with CARF because there's, again, I, there's other hospitals that had asked about CARF. Um, she went on to say that JCO, the Joint Commission, requires the CCC to measure competency and that without it, we would have to do internal competency checks, which is interesting because our hospital already has these internal competencies. If you want to see any specialty patients such as AAC, dysphagia, voice, dyslexia, etc. So she might have just been scrambling when she said that. She said, plus, and this is literally when we were on the call, she said, plus the regulatory body would be the Ohio board. So our Ohio license, I'd imagine, would suffice for an internal competency check. And I said, it has to be the state license. There's no other regulatory body. Um, I said, we'll call JCO next, but maybe not today. And she, she said, I honestly feel that she was so floored that she was scrambling and trying to find reasons other than her personal positive feelings towards ASHA. She made comments about how the hospital pays ASHA thousands and thousands of dollars each year and how they closely support them. And it was digressing into a whole, we love ASHA, what do you mean you don't conversation? She also made a comment that I wouldn't want an SLP that didn't value their CCC working here, which in retrospect was very alarming. I'd be happy to help lay out all of this if, say, X, you can respond with Y based off my experience. She said I was not expect. She said I was not expecting a very non-confrontational, polite, and professional discussion to be taken so personally by someone in upper management. And so I asked a couple questions. I said, how old is she? Because I'm expecting like someone at like 60 something. <laughs> how old is she? Does she have a PhD? Because this is a very academic SLP type of conversation. So she is in her mid 40s. Um, doesn't sound like she has a PhD, but that's what this person is experiencing. We're going to help her put together some information from CARF, hopefully from JCO. Um, so she Thank can you take for it back. The Joint Commission Customer Service Department. Yes. I know you said not to call today, but let's just do it. This was not our episode, but here we are. 
If you are calling to file a safety complaint for an accredited organization, press 2 for instructions. If you would like to speak to your account executive, press 3. For all other inquiries, press 4. We're sorry, we're unable to answer the phone right now. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi, my name is Megan Berg. I have a question about the requirements for speech language pathologists for accredited facilities. If you could call me back, my number is 403. Thank you. So we'll see if they call us back. Um, what we were intending to talk about today is taking a few steps back and being like, okay, if we were to like start from the ground up and define what should be required to be a speech pathologist, what would that be? And so I invite everybody listening to just kind of release and let go of the existing system in your mind and just be like, okay, we're, we're looking at a blank slate, a blank canvas. And now that we know, like now that this profession has been around for a little over a hundred years and has evolved significantly in that time. Um, what do we want it to look like and what should be required of a human being to get a state license or should it be a state license at all? So this is something that we posed in the stories on Instagram. And so lots of people had different ideas. Should we just go through the different ideas? So some, oh, somebody said annual competency checks at work. So that would be like supervision or note reviews, specialized grad program based on school versus medical, and then just a state license. Um, passing a specialized exam with some sort of supervision for the first six months. Uh, lots of people have different thoughts around like including specific topics like neurodiversity affirming and autism, instrumental exams, counseling. Uh, somebody mentioned that the degree should be three years, not two years, plus the clinical fellowship year, because we know too many stories of CFs not learning. Somebody mentioned the idea of just keeping the standards of the CCC, but keep keep it as a one and done milestone. So you just pay that fee once, and that indicates that you've met all of those requirements. Kara said a rich spouse. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack there where we have a field of 96% women with a stagnant salary and not a lot of growth options in our careers. I would challenge what you said and say not stagnant, but declining because declining. no one gets raises and the cost of living goes up. That is actually less income, even though the number stays the same. Yeah. Yeah. And to add to that, I think that 
I I think that women are treated differently and there's evidence to back this up where it's assumed that women are going to marry and rely on a heterosexual sort of relationship to bring in the bulk of the family income. Um, Emily says a fellowship year with whatever age you're working with. So if at any point in your career, you want to work with kids or adults, your first year on the job needs to be a fellowship. So you have mentorship. I think it's crap that someone could spend 20 years working with adults and then decide to take a school SLP position or vice versa and not receive any mentorship. Absolutely. Um, Sophia said similar requirements to PT and OT. A CEU on what to unlearn as an SLP. Uh, somebody said a master's degree with continuing education, knowledge on laws that are related to our profession. Somebody said praxis and a practicum, possibly split between adults and pediatrics. Um, somebody else says 50-50 split. CCC covers state and national certifications. State takes half and ASHA takes half. That's interesting. I'll just say as a side note in Montana, I have not paid my state licensing fee for a couple of years because the state association started asking questions about their budget. And it turns out that they were taking in way more money than it cost to regulate the licenses. And so there was some transparency around that. So I just have questions about like who gets to define what that is and and you can't have you can't have a split between a regulatory body and a membership association uh, somebody said a specialist degree instead of a master's so I don't know if that would be like an associate's degree I don't know what else what other kind of degree you would get uh, in just a state license well, like a, like a DSLP. Oh, okay. So going the other uh, way. Yeah. SLPD. Um, Precious Daffodil said bachelor's in communication science disorders with more rotations as senior specialized masters. Dr. Moore's speech said OTs and PTs do not require a clinical fellowship year. Why is it required for SLPs? And that's because it's built into the training program and why their programs are a little longer. And somebody said, I feel like you should read this one, Jeanette. Number 23. I can definitely read this with some, some passion. There's capital also, letters. So. Here we go. Also, for the love of all things holy, there needs to be considerably more dementia education in grad school, not just learning about the different types of dementia, but the stages of dementia, how each stage impacts our treatment plan, etc. Dementia literally guides every single clinical decision I make in my senior living communities, and I was wholly unprepared. I responded back to this clinician and I said, as the literal protege of Michelle Bourgeois, I concur. 
(laughs) (laughs) Which is how I ended up working with Michelle because I've shared on the pod before, I had no idea what I was doing with dysphagia, but was equally as unprepared for dementia. I had a fabulous aphasia professor, um, but just less education on dementia. Agreed. Which is really what every SLP needs who's working in an elementary school. So I think that's I mean, a great universal obviously, standard to pull. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, which is why like these people who are, you know, saying like maybe we need tracks or something like that or some kind of fellowship or supervised experience in what you're working in makes a ton of sense. Yep. Ton of sense. So I, yeah. I teach overlap classes though too. So I teach AAC. You can mm-hmm. have AAC with pediatrics or adults. I treat dysphagia. You can have dysphagia with pediatric or adults. Mm-hmm. I treat motor speech which covers pediatric and adults. So there are some topics that cover both, but I would argue even in those topic areas, my classes lean very heavy adult because that's what I do. And they're very light on the pediatric info. Like, so for dysphagia, I have to bring in guest speakers because I'm not going to pretend to be competent in those areas. Um, So I bring in people who can do a better job than me. But even some of those clashes, classes, I think need to be split. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have some thoughts. And and they're kind of all over the place. So we'll just see what you think, Jeanette. But I personally think a national exam is redundant if we have competency checkoffs from supervisors. And the reason, I think it's not only redundant, but a national exam isn't, it doesn't really fit with our profession. So like I understand an exam for architecture, engineering, I could see it for respiratory therapy. I could see it for... I, I don't know. It's just something that's a little more cut and dry. Speech pathology is an art and a science, and it has just as much to do with bedside manner and counseling skills and all of that. And so if if we have a curriculum in, at the grad school level and we're taking exams for that specific content, and then we're having really good universal competency checkoffs from supervisors I don't think we even need a national exam because exams like people who do well on tests are people who do well on tests. Like the test oftentimes isn't checking people's knowledge. It's just like, does this person's brain do well with multiple choice questions and and some people's brains do well and some people don't. And you could have somebody that gets an A plus on a test, but then you put them in a patient's room and, and they bomb. So I don't, I think it's not fair to SLPs and it's not fair to consumers to rely on a national exam. What do you think? This almost reminds me of what we went through 15 years ago in this field, following um, a time where 
lots of people were looking for jobs and we had a nationwide shortage of speech therapists and we had the recession or whatever. And people wanted to be sure that they were going to get a job when they were done with college. So at that time, many people were entering the field of speech pathology as students and we really bottlenecked. We had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students entering undergraduate programs and there weren't enough master's programs to accommodate all of these students, which is why now like Pennsylvania between the accredited programs and the programs who are candidate programs, we have like 27 programs now in Pennsylvania, which is wild. So now we're yeah. like see, seeing the pendulum swift shift swing the other way. Um, but this reminds me of that time when we had all of these applicants, you know, when I was at Ohio State during this time, I think I heard the number we would get like 600 applicants for like 30 master's degree places. It was wild. And what we started to see, so, you know, then I graduated and then I went off to my first faculty position. And what we were seeing was that people could get a 4.0 very easily and maybe not be involved in anything like extracurricular, maybe not have good interpersonal skills, maybe just not be a good person. And so many programs at that time were admitting people to their programs just based on GRE scores, um, GPA, things like that, and, and weren't having actual interviews. So, mm -hmm. and we were seeing this, we didn't, I don't think we were doing interviews where I was at at the time, but I had to counsel someone out of the master's program um, my second year because she, she, when she got into the room with a client, she just completely broke down. And I mean, mm -hmm. we remediated her every week. I was remediating and trying to help her and I'd meet with her one-on-one -on -one, and we'd have a plan. And like, it was so much extra work for her mm -hmm. and she still couldn't rise to the occasion of like having these interpersonal skills to like help yeah. this patient. It was just, it was hard to watch. It had to be hard for her to endure and um, you know, eventually like we had a couple like come to Jesus moments where I'm like, are you sure this is what you want to do? Are you sure you want to keep putting money into this and all this time and effort? And she ended up leaving the program. Um, but it's that same kind of thing that you just said, like you can be great on paper, but really not have the clinical skills and, um, yeah. so, or yeah, the emotional intelligence. A lot of programs have moved to that's why there's interviews now to get into grad school because of that time where it's just like we got a lot of 4.0 out. You know, if you weren't getting a 3.9 or a 4.0, you weren't getting into grad school, right? Like 3.8s got waitlisted and even then you might not get in. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's that same kind of thing. Just because you have it on paper doesn't mean you have the skill. Um and my concern would be who is writing these competencies to check off to make sure that the person is competent because we all, especially again, like this person just said in dementia, there is a gross lack of education on how to assess, how to treat, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. If you have the supervisor checking off the competencies who doesn't have this skill, Right. Are we helping anyone? Same thing with dysphagia. There are so many practitioners out there who haven't kept up. Yep. Um, 
And I think that's what ASHA was trying to resolve. And that's why they're like, in order to supervise a student, you have to have a C's because they were trying to control that control for that factor that you really can't control for in a lot of ways. And so I think I, I would love to see us shift again away from a very hierarchical, controlling, authoritative body to a free market system where SLPs are just more aware of, like, they, they just have more options. So they get to kind of decide And this, you're going to hear this and be like, that's completely unreasonable. But students could say the supervisor wasn't helpful and the university would take it seriously and stop using that supervisor. No, I completely agree with that. Right. Yeah. I completely agree. I loathe, <laughs> loathe these programs. And I get it, you guys. I did the externship placement job. It is hard. But if our students are coming back and saying, this was not a good experience with, with for me, this was not in line with the evidence-based practice that I was learning in your class, we need to take them seriously. They aren't preschool children. They are adults who are about to be our colleagues. Stop sending these students to these crappy placements where they're unlearning everything we just spent 16 weeks trying to pound into their head and then... Yeah, I mean, we just need to stop. We need to stop the madness. Stop. Yes, no, I I think you're right. For <laughs> once, we are aligned. <laughs> but I think what's happening now is like, well, they have the CCC and like there's a shortage of people who are willing to do this. And so we're just going to keep quietly sending students that way. And so the CCC isn't accomplishing what it's trying to do. I know we've talked about Calypso. I, I don't know if it's privately oh, yeah. or, or on here, but Calypso actually has a place where the students can rate their supervisors. And I've never worked at a university who actually uses that function. Um, wow. And actually, wow. as, a, as an externship coordinator, I have actually been asked, will your students be rating our, our clinician and what will you do with that information? Because they didn't want us to do that. Oh my God, that is so power over dynamics. And it, oh, it just fits with our current culture I know. of like one group of people controlling another group of people. And it's so oppressive and it's like our last episode. And we're going to talk more about the history of Asha, but Asha has a very, very, very dark history. <laughs> like the founder's have I mean you can go read all the papers they wrote they're incredibly racist incredibly elitist people who just felt like words needed to be spoken a certain way with a certain accent and a certain flow or whatever and like if people didn't talk that way that was a problem and that was bringing down society in general and it was up to speech therapists to fix it and go around and fix everybody and like make them talk like all the white people and like this is the culture and so we can't stand it we we are so uncomfortable as a group having two-way dialogues or or understanding that somebody might disagree with us or what we perceive as quote wrong is really just different 
And I think that's why it's taken so long for speech pathology to understand autism and to understand what autistic people have been trying to say to us for decades. And it's like, I, it's, yeah, we could go on and on, but you have to give students, you have to have feedback mechanisms and students have to be taken seriously. And we have to have this freer market that where there's more checks and balances where students are getting what they need and what they're paying for. Um, And we're not just like relying on this dumb certification to quote regulate everything when it's not doing any of that. And I also wanted to circle back the CCC standards as well as the CAA standards are based on the practice analysis. And we've talked briefly about this and we'll talk more about it, but basically this is a survey. It just went out recently where Asha was asking people to take this. It was going to take like an hour and they're trying to get enough people to respond to this. And what they do is they hire a statistician basically to look at the answers of the survey and be like, okay, these are the things, these are all the skills and knowledge points that working SLPs need right now. And then that gets applied to the curriculum standards and and then they conflate the cur- curriculum standards with the CCC standards, even though they're the same thing and they're redundant. But the going back to what you said, Jeanette, about like who's writing the competency standards, that could be an alternative, like get rid of the CCC and just turn it into a competency standard program. And if right. it's good enough and universities are like, oh, that, that really does reflect reality and students agree with that too, then we can all choose to opt into that system and use that as a universal checklist and then get to a point where it's like, okay, you've been through this entire process with competency checkoffs in grad school and the degree should be enough. There doesn't have to be another certification or another layer after that. It should all be packaged up into this degree that people are paying tens of thousands of dollars for. Yeah. And one way we could do that, I want to just, because people, I know sometimes hear us and agree with us, but like, what would that look like? You have a hard time, like figuring that out. What that would look like is something that I do in my dysphagia class. And I just want to preface this. I did not come up with this, although I did give it my own twist. I modified this from my mentor, Pam Smith. So this wasn't my idea. Um, She taught several dysphagia courses at her university. She just retired. Um, And so she had like different versions of this, I think, but I only have one dysphagia class. So I had to put everything in it. But I arrived home last night at 10 p.m. because I was giving oral, I call them oral competencies all day. I've been to, we're recording on a Friday. I've been doing these since last week. I schedule 45 minutes for each student and I get them into my office and we sit in the dark. And the first thing I do is I put up a still shot of an MBS in front of them and I make them tell me landmarks. I say, what's A, what's B, what's G, what's K? And they have to tell me what the landmarks are. If I had more time, I would also do it with a a still frame from B's, but I don't have enough time. Um, Then I hand them an HMP that I've written. And so it's a history and physical and they read it and they tell me based on the history and physical, which means what's going on with this patient, what's the history, what's currently happening, what are the patient preferences and choices, what does the family say, what's their current diet, what's the presenting problem. They have to read that and tell me five things that they could reasonably expect 
on an instrumental examination. And then they have to watch an instrumental examination and they have to tell me five things that are happening or like going wrong in the instrumental. They have to tell me the pathophysiology of why it was happening. And then they have to tell me if they are going to treat that issue, considering the issue, the pathophysiology and the case. So you can't just tell me if you see piriform sinus residue, you can't tell me there was a UES distension problem because it might be a weak base of tongue problem. And you might not use a liquid wash if it was a UES distension problem because, you know, you might just be adding to the residue. So, or, you know, maybe there's a dementia issue, severe dementia, you're not going to do a Mendelssohn to fix that problem because can they follow those instructions? So they have to take the case into consideration, the pathophysiology, they have to tell me what they're going to do. And they're, if they say no, they have to, no, I'm not going to treat that. They have to tell me why. And they're only allowed to say no one time. And they're only allowed to use each treatment one time because you can't just say effortful swallow for everything. You have to be competent. Then they have to pretend like I'm the family member and tell me, what happened, why it happened, what the plan is. They have to make an ITSY diet recommendation and have a reason for the, the diet and liquid that they chose. And then as part of the assessment, I consider how much help they had to have. You know, they lose points if there's too much queuing. And they have to have shown me that in each section, the H&P um, predictions, the middle part where they're watching the MBS and the family conversation, they have to show evidence that they have considered the case throughout the entire process. And that is what looking competent in my class looks like. You yeah. have to know assessment, you have to know treatment, you have to have a person-centered plan, um, and you have to understand all of it. Can you yeah. imagine if you did that in every class? So what here's my, like? like, that's amazing. And like, you're an amazing professor. I'm hard, I, I'm hard Megan. Let's yeah. complain to the chair. I'm too hard. So let, no, but let's like students. play this out. So let's say that that was sort of, that became the standard um, competency checkoff. My argument then, or my question would be, what, path do students have to give feedback that they've been given enough opportunities and training to succeed in that? Because I can tell I you. was in, a, okay. I, well, yeah, I know you, I know you've done I it. I have it but built I'm, in. We have yeah, a conversation exactly. after. I but like that. I was in a situation in grad school where I was getting all A's and then I had an oral exam and I failed it. And it was so frustrating to me because I was like, I'm showing up here every day. I'm paying the tens of thousands of dollars. I've gotten A's the entire way through. And all of a sudden, out of fucking nowhere, I'm failing. And it was so yeah. humiliating and so frustrating. And I had no recourse. Like I went to the chair and it was sort of like, oh yeah, like we're getting this feedback, but, but nothing was done. And so I agree that there need to be really high competency checkoffs. And that one sounds amazing, but there also needs to be a respect to students. But I also understand that sometimes students will use that feedback system to mm -hmm. say that they didn't give, get the opportunities when they really did. So yeah. it's a, it can be very tricky. abusive towards a professor, that feedback yeah. system. So here's what I do. 
And I know that there is a power dynamic that sometimes students will still feel uncomfortable, but I try to foster these relationships throughout. So by the end, they're comfortable talking to me. But on the first day, I let them know, look, you know nothing about any of this. And I am walking on a path with you. We are walking down a path that is step by step by step. And I am going, I am, I'm going through this with you and I will be here with you. And my, my purpose is not to fail you, which I've never done. It is to help you at the end, be so amazed and so proud of yourself with what you are going to accomplish. And then I briefly tell them there will be an oral final. We're not going over it now because you will freak out. There'll be an oral competency. You will freak out, but just know we're walking on this path. And so I remind them of that. And then at the end, one of the reasons it's a 45 minute session, because they have to do all of that in 25 minutes. For the last 20 minutes, we talk about the class and I invite them to, they have to come prepared with a couple things that they loved about the class that they thought were great, that were helpful, that I should definitely keep. And a couple things about the class that they didn't like or they think that need modified or change. And I invite them to tell me these things respectfully. So before we start, I tell them, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I am inviting this verbal feedback. And the negative is just as important as the positive. And you've already earned your grade, right? So they've. this is after the, the oral comp, which is the last thing all the grades are in. So nothing they say is going to change their grades. They know what they're getting in my class. Um, and I just say, like, I want to hear a couple. You have to give me something from both because nothing's perfect. And this is how my class has grown to you know, people used to fail this oral comp all the time. But from this feedback that I've been able to get from them, I've been able to make my class better, to better prepare them, you know, to, to teach them better, to have more meaningful and valuable assignments that they're responding better to. And you have all kinds of learners. So, you know, kind of hitting like those people who are better with written or hands-on or lecture mm-hmm. or guided notes. And I, you have to be an educator who wants to do that though. And so there is still that competency issue that if you don't have someone like me, and I do this for all of my classes, I don't give an oral comp in every class, um, but I do invite this feedback at the end of every class. So I can just have this, like, uh, my goal is by the time I retire for them to sit there and tell me, don't change anything, Dr. Ben, I guess this was amazing. <laughs> and I have started getting that a couple times now at this phase, but this is like after seven years of trying. So, you know, I'm getting there. It used to be way more complaints than positives, yeah. but that's, that's a good feedback, but yeah. I've had to earn that trust from them too. And, mm-hmm. and people have sat there and attacked my character and I've sat and taken yeah. it, but that's, you know, I invite that and that's not really the norm, but it's so right. much better than those it's student, true. those student reviews that they write and rate because yeah. people are just nasty on those. This is like a respectful yeah. conversation where I can then ask questions too, like, yeah. oh, that's a really good idea. What would you think if I did it this way? Or, okay, you don't like that. I hear yeah. you, but I still have to hold you accountable. So what's another way I could do this that would work? And Yeah. I mean, I hope that's how our field can evolve. We can move away from power over. And it sounds like you've worked really hard to create a system that's power with and empowering. And we both have to wrap this up because we're meeting with an attorney in a few minutes. But I just like to wrap it up. I think it's interesting because whenever we talk about 
uh, requirements to be an SLP, it always, the conversation always comes back to grad school standards. And that's where I'm like, the degree should be enough. And all of the conversations that we're having come back to clarifying curriculum and what the process is for getting a degree. Again, I personally think that the the degree needs to be specialized. So there needs to be a school-based program and a medical-based in programs. Universities could offer one or both and students could choose one or both, but they there needs to be a difference. And then there needs to be a school-based license and a medical-based license. But ultimately the degree itself is enough. We're not adding certifications on whatever else on top of that. We're going back to the curriculum. We're getting that strengthened we're figuring out these competency checkoffs. We're figuring out like dumb rules. Like you have to have so many PhD people in your program. Like I personally think you should have more adjunct people. Like those are the people in the trenches that know the current knowledge. Like there should be requirements about getting practicing SLPs teaching in the program and then having support systems and courses in place for those instructors so that they can fast track what you already have taken the time to learn <laughs> And so that students aren't having to learn from people who aren't even exposed to the things, the kinds of things that you've taken the time to figure out. I would even say, even then, if it's school and medical, then even if you want both, you are not Mm -hmm. doing that in the same amount of time. So you've now entered a longer program, almost like a doctor who wants to like, specialize in something you become a doctor and then you become a surgeon you're not not a pediatrician and an oncologist yeah (laughs) but I would even say in the medical there's a lot of medical knowledge hold on I need to pause (laughs) she muted just in time to cough all the germs all the germs are going around right now I think I'm on virus number three for the last two months Okay. I didn't even aspirate. It was just like a scratch that went up into my eye. It was so bad. Okay. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Even with medical, there even needs to be more specialized pediatric and adult. So even that track needs to split a little bit because in dysphagia, kids are not little adults. Yeah. Those are completely no. different issues. And so, you know, if you're going medical, you're still not across the scope, prepared across the scope to work in any hospital or any, you know, pediatric setting. So I think there would be some specialization there. And I know my academic SLP friends will hate this because it will upset our lives and cause us to have to move and stuff like that. But I think that this would even fix some of these issues where there's 20 something programs in Pennsylvania not mm-hmm. every university is going to offer the school track or the medical track or the medical peds or the medical adult. And there's probably not currently enough of us to like figure all of this out, but our programs should advertise these specialty tracks. Yeah. And so that would, again, split us up. Like I'd be going to an adult medical program. Yeah. I wouldn't be teaching at a place that is, solely advertising like school track or school peds track. And then you would need, you know, some of these bigger universities like Penn State, Ohio State, Pitt, that, you know, these big programs where there's enough faculty at the university where then you could offer all the tracks, but some smaller programs like mine, there's, we have two PhDs 
an EDD and a master's and all but one of us are medical adult SLPs. So, you know, that's what our program would be. And I just want to say again, like we're not saying that medical SLP is more advanced or school SLP is more advanced. All we're saying is that they're very different skill sets, very different settings, very different challenges, different billing setups. I mean, there's just so much information that is unique to each of those separate settings. And even paperwork, you know, paper, an IEP is different than writing a four sentence progress note in my chart, right? It's completely different, different writing style, different abbreviations. It's just everything different. So, okay. (laughs) In case you missed it, in case you missed the key word that Megan said earlier, we are meeting with an attorney. So we've got to go. Yeah. (laughs) More to come. So, um, we are signing off. Thanks for listening and thanks for fixing it. Bye. Bye everybody.